My beloved brethren, with all my heart, my love goes out to you. on this very important occasion. I thank the Lord for this gathering here tonight. I gave the signal to Brother Hinckley that it would be better if I didn't speak tonight And he has a way of getting his own way. (laughs) And so I'm here. I would like to say this to you. One of the greatest thrills of my life outside of the time my wife gave her consent, was when a fine bishop came to me and asked if I would take the leadership of 24 boys in our ward of scout age. I shall never forget that glorious experience. The first thing a scoutmaster does is usually to seek out some good woman who can play the piano, has a musical technique, but that was especially true in the little country ward of 300 people up in southeastern Idaho because there was competitive choruses at that time in the church. And it was necessary to have a woman that knew something about music. We all sang the same song, The Morning Breaks, The Shadows Flee, by Polly P. Pratt. And so we started with the support of that wonderful bishop. We started practicing. We had first to compete with the other wards in the stake. And of course, we were successful with those other wards. We defeated them. And then I made a serious mistake. I told those boys, if we won out in Cache Valley, that was the unit then, 
I would take them on a hike over the mountain into Bear Lake Valley. And a boy never forgets anything that's to his advantage. <laughs> and so we went out with the 11 wards. And at the scout meeting, after the victory, one of the young fellows raised his hand and said, Mr. Scoutmaster, I'd like to make a motion. But you don't make motions in scout meetings. He said, I'd like to make a motion so we will not be bothered with combs and brushes on this trip. We all clip her hair off. Some of the scouts had reached that critical age when they were taking notice of the girls, and they didn't feel that a clipped head would be any asset to them. <laughs> but I told them if we went out in the district in Logan, I'd be sure and take them on the trip. We went out in the stake. And then, of course, you know I wouldn't be telling this story had we not went out in Logan. <laughs> we did. And one of the thrills of my life was the day we drew for position for places with the other teams. And we won first place. That meant that the, that the suffering had to continue until the end. Because they drew places starting With number 10, I think there were 10 units. We drew last place. But one of the thrills of my life was when this good sister on the piano played the Stars and Stripes Forever as these young men marched up and formed in a half moon on the stage, and I crouched down between two benches to try and give them a little leadership and encouragement. We went out, we went out in Logan. And the next night was scout meeting. And it was then that this little 12-year-old made the motion. And several of the older scouts said, how about the scoutmasters? 
It was our turn to squirm. And so at, at the county seat in Preston, two scoutmasters very willingly submitted themselves to the barber who very gleefully went over our heads with the clippers. <laughs> and when he got near the end, he said, you know, if you fellows would let me clip, uh, shave your heads, I'd do the whole thing for nothing. <laughs> and so we did. <laughs> and so we went... 24 boys with heads clipped and two scoutmasters with heads shaven. <laughs> and what a great time we had. One of the greatest joys of my life as a scoutmaster with these 24 boys. Every one of them was good as measured by church standards. And I love every one of them. I was up in the ward some time ago and there were quite a number of them there I attended Sunday school one of the boys was the bishop of the ward another was his first counselor The High Council visitor was another of the boys. And so after the sacrament meeting, we checked on all the 24. There were two of them that we couldn't locate. Nobody knew anything about them. I was down in southern Arizona at a state conference. And I looked way down at the end of the hall and I thought I could see one of these boys. He came up to the front after the meeting we threw our arms around each other. I said, Wallace, what are you doing way down here? He said, I guess you mean what am I doing in scouting? I said, yes. What are you doing in scouting? He said, well, I'm a scoutmaster. master. 
And that took care of me pretty well. And then we So that was one of the two that we couldn't find. Then I was up speaking at a Farm Bureau meeting in Burley, Idaho. And I was up on the platform with the president of the Farm Bureau. And I saw a young man down at the door passing out literature. I said, who's that young man down there? He said, he's our county agent. I said, what's his name? He said, Glenn Bodley. Here was the last of the group. All 24 of them have been identified. And all of them, as near as we could tell, we're doing a good job of life, except two. One of them was the young man whom we discovered down in southern Arizona. I started a correspondence with him, and after about two years, I had the honor and the blessing of performing the marriage for this family in the temple. Glenn Bodley took a little longer. I think it was three or four years. His father and mother were our closest neighbors on the farm. But it finally happened. And his father and mother sat there with the tears rolling down their cheeks as I performed the ceiling for this wonderful young man and four or five children. As near as we can tell, that was the last of the group. They'd all been married in the temple or sealed in the temple. I'm grateful for the young man of this church. My father had seven sons. He challenged the entire county for a basketball team, family basketball team. It's probably fortunate for us that he didn't get a taker. <laughs> but in any event, we all played basketball. That's why I enjoy basketball more than I do football. With all my heart, my brethren, I commend you 
for the good things you're doing and say to you, it doesn't pay. to go astray. It pays to live the gospel, to maintain your standards. To associate with good young men. I'm grateful to the Lord for the home in which I was born and for that mission that Brother Monson referred to of my father. I agree wholeheartedly with the words you've had from this outstanding coach. It pays to live the gospel, to keep the commandments, to stand up for the truth, wherever you are. Some of you know that I was at one time in government. It was not easy, but I got a commitment from the president that I would never be asked to support a policy I didn't believe in. He said, that's unusual for you to request that. Well, I said, I mean it. I will never support a policy I do not believe in. And so I had that promise. And he was true to his promise. God bless you, my brethren. I should not stand here and chatter any longer. I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful for my seven brothers, all of whom have been on missions, as Brother Monson has mentioned. Two widowed sisters that sent their sons and daughters on missions. Then they decided they wanted to go, and they did. They called me on the telephone and said, guess what? We've just got our calls to go on missions. I said, what calls? They said, don't you know? They expect the president of 12 to know everything. <laughs> I said, no, I hadn't heard. They said, yes, we're going to your old field of labor in England. And I wish them well. I wish you could have heard I wish you could have heard the reports of those two women as they returned from their missions. The most important thing in this life 
is a testimony of the truth. And there isn't any place on earth where you have the opportunity to get a testimony like you do in the mission field. I know. I've been there time and time again. God bless you all. And God bless this great gathering of priesthood. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. With a prayer in my heart for understanding and with some timidity, I speak today concerning parents and children with special problems. I do so because I am persuaded that these extraordinary challenges are, as the Savior himself said, that the works of God should be manifest. How these challenges are met can often be the expression of the very essence of the gospel of Christ. It is a common sight in our congregations to have a small group of people near the front who communicate by the graceful motion of the hands as well as by the Spirit. They are the people who cannot hear. Always some kind and gifted soul sits in front of the group and lovingly converts the sounds and syllables into distinguishable motions. Recently, in a large meeting, we were touched to observe the hearing-impaired members singing the hymns in parts through the motion of their hands. When the bass and tenor parts were sung, the hands of the sisters were motionless. When the soprano and alto parts were sung, the hands of the brethren were still. To me, it was a very touching sight. Those who are without hearing are some of the special ones among us, as are the people who do not have sight, and those who have other physical or mental limitations. I wish to say a word of appreciation for those among us who struggle with handicaps and impart a message of comfort to their families, especially to the parents. Where in all the world is the perfect son or daughter of God who is totally without blemish? Is life not worth living if it is not perfect? Do not the people with handicaps also bring their own gifts to life and to others who are free of those handicaps in a manner that cannot come in any other way? There is hardly a family without one of its members who might be considered physically or mentally diminished. I have great appreciation for those loving parents who stoically bear and overcome their anguish and heartbreak for a child who is born with or who has developed a serious mental or physical infirmity. This anguish often continues every day without relief during the lifetime of the parent or the child. Not infrequently, parents are required to give superhuman nurturing care that never ceases, day or night. Many a mother's arms and heart have ached years on end giving comfort and relieving the suffering of her special child. The anguish of parents upon first learning that their child is not developing normally can be indescribable. The tearful concern, the questions about what the child will and will not be able to do are heart-rending. Doctor, will our child be able to talk, walk, care for himself? Often there are no certain answers but one. You will have to be grateful for whatever development your child achieves. 
The paramount concern is always how to care for the person who is handicapped. The burden of future nurturing can seem overwhelming. Looking ahead to the uncertain years or even to a lifetime of constant backbreaking care can seem more than one can bear. There are often many tears before reality is acknowledged. Parents and family members can then begin to accept and take the burden a day at a time. Said one great mother of a severely handicapped child, I gradually began to take only one day at a time, and it didn't seem so hard. In fact, at the end of each day, I would thank the Lord for the strength I had to get through that day and pray that tomorrow would be as good. That way I learned to love him and appreciate his place in our home." A missionary writing to his parents said of his handicapped younger brother, Mom, kiss Billy every day for me. In one of the discussions we learned that my little brother is an automatic winner in the kingdom of God. I only pray that I may become as him and live with my Heavenly Father and see my little brother and converse with him. He is a special gift, and we are truly blessed." The challenge of having handicapped people is not new. Many have questioned why some have such limitations. It was so in the time of Jesus. And Jesus passed by, and he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. How are the works of God manifest in these, our handicapped brothers and sisters? Surely they are manifested greatly in the loving care and attention given by parents, other family members, friends, and associates. The handicapped are not on trial. Those of us who live free of such limitations are the ones who are on trial. While those with handicaps cannot be measured in the same way as others, many benefit immensely from each accomplishment, no matter how small. The handiwork of God is manifest with respect to the handicapped in many ways. It is demonstrated in the miraculous way in which many individuals with mental and physical impediments are able to adjust and compensate for their limitations. Occasionally, other senses become more functional and substitute in a remarkable way. A young friend, greatly retarded in speech and movement, repaired a complicated clock, although she had had no previous training or experience in watch or clock making. Many of the special ones are superior in many ways. They, too, are in a life of progression, and new things unfold for them each day as with us all. They can be extraordinary in their faith and spirit. Some are able, through their prayers, to communicate with the infinite in a most remarkable way. Many have a pure faith in others and a powerful belief in God. They can give their spiritual strength to others around them. For the handicapped trying to cope with life, it is often like trying to reach the unreachable. But recall the words of the Prophet Joseph Smith. All the minds and spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible of enlargement. 
Certainly, in the infinite mercy of God, those without physical and mental limitations will not remain so after the resurrection. At this time, Alma says, the spirit and the body shall be united again in perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame. Afflictions, like mortality, are temporary. Surely more sharing of the burden will contribute to the emotional salvation of the person who is the primary caregiver of a handicapped person. Just an hour of help now and then would be appreciated. One mother of a child who is handicapped said, I could never dream of going to Hawaii on a vacation. All I can hope for is to have an evening away from home. The Savior's teaching that handicaps are not punishment for sin, either in the parents or the handicapped, can also be understood and applied in today's circumstances. How can it possibly said that an innocent child born with a special problem is being punished? Why should parents who have kept themselves free from social disease, addicting chemicals, and other debilitating substances which might affect their offspring imagine that the birth of a disabled child is some form of divine disapproval? Usually both the parents and the children are blameless. The Savior of the world reminds us, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. May I express a word of gratitude and appreciation to those many who minister with such kindness and skill to our handicapped people. Special commendation belongs to parents and family members who have cared for their own children with special needs in the loving atmosphere of their own home. The care of those who are diminished is a special service rendered to the Master himself, for inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, ye have done it unto me. Parents of handicapped children are occasionally embarrassed or hurt by others who awkwardly express sympathy but cannot know or appreciate the depth of the parent's love for a handicapped child. Perhaps there is some comparison in the fact that there is no less love in families for the helpless infant who must be fed, bathed, and diapered than for the older but still dependent members. We love those we serve and who need us. Is it not possible to look beyond the canes, the wheelchairs, the braces, and the crutches into the hearts of the people who have need of these aids? They are human beings and want only to be treated as ordinary people. They may appear different, move awkwardly, and speak haltingly, but they have the same feelings. They laugh, they cry, they know discouragement and hope. They do not want to be shunned. They want to be loved for what they are inside, without any prejudice for impairment. Can there not be more tolerance for differences, differences in capacity, differences in body and in mind? Those who are close to the handicapped can frequently feel the nobility of the spirits confined in the different shaped bodies or who have crippled minds. May I also say a word of comfort for anguished parents of children who have lost their way and who have turned a deaf ear to parental pleading and teaching. While much of the time children follow in their parents' footsteps, obedient to their teachings, reciprocating their love, 
a few turn their backs like the prodigal son and waste their lives. The great principle of free agency is essential in fostering development, growth, and progress. It also permits the freedom to choose self-indulgence, wastefulness, and degradation. Children have their agency and often express it when very young. They may or may not follow the teachings and wishes of their parents. Most parents do the best they know how, but also understand well the words of Lehi, hear the words of a trembling parent. We are indebted to Elder Howard W. Hunter for these wise words. A successful parent is one who has loved, one who has sacrificed, and one who has cared for, taught, and ministered to the needs of a child. If you have done all these and your child is still wayward or troublesome or worldly, it could well be that you are nevertheless a successful parent. Perhaps there are children who have come into the world who would challenge any set of parents under any set of circumstances. Likewise, there are parents who would bless the lives of and be a joy to almost any father or mother." As caring parents, we do the best we can. I am hopeful that in parenting, God will judge at least partially by the intent of the parental hearts. Children have so much to learn. Parents need to teach their children so many things. They are commanded to teach their children specifically the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old. But, having lived by these truths and having taught them in their home, parents cannot always ensure their children's good behavior. Said Ezekiel, The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Parents have the obligation to teach, not force, and having prayerfully and conscientiously taught, parents cannot always be answerable for all their children's conduct. Obedient children do bring honor to their parents, but it is unfair to judge faithful parents by the actions of children who will not listen and follow. Parents do have the obligation to instruct. But children themselves have a responsibility to listen, to be obedient, and to perform as they've been taught. Parents are parents and usually serve their children more than children serve their parents. To concerned parents, I would paraphrase Winston Churchill. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. I do not have any foolproof formula for the nurturing of children. Beyond being a good example in teaching faith, it is essential to give children unreserved love, to give measured discipline, and to try to instill self-mastery in them. A great mother who scrubbed floors to help her children through school said, I taught my children their prayers, their manners, and to work. The Lord reminds us that we should continually teach repentance, faith in Christ, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. The works of God are manifest in so many ways in the challenges of parents and children, especially to those who are handicapped and to those who have lost their way. For those who have asked, Why did this happen to me? 
Why did this happen to my child? There is assurance that difficulty will not be forever. Life on this earth is not long. Care of the unfortunate and laboring with the wayward is a manifestation of the pure love of Christ. For those who carry such a challenge in this life, God himself provides a response. That response is patience and the strength to endure. It lies, as Paul and Job testify, in the hope of eternal life, promised before the world began, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and the Redeemer of mankind. I testify that through obedience to his commandments we may enjoy the strength to triumph over every challenge of this life. May God grant this peaceful, sustaining influence to all, and especially to those in greatest need. I so pray in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm confident there are echoes in the heart of every member of this vast congregation the words of that hymn just sung by the Tabernacle Choir, God Bless Our Prophet Dear. A week ago last evening, there emanated from this tabernacle on Temple Square a great conference of the women of the Church. Hundreds of thousands, I think, participated in that conference, which was carried across the continent from coast to coast. It was an inspirational experience to look into the faces of those assembled in the tabernacle on that occasion, women of beauty, women of strength, women of capacity, women of virtue, women of faith. Last night, similarly, there emanated from the tabernacle here a great gathering of the priesthood, a meeting which was carried from here to 714 other locations across the world and to 900 stake centers in which were assembled men and boys of the Church who love the Lord and walk with faith and conviction. What a marvelous thing this work is, my beloved brethren and sisters. Participating in the meeting last night was Coach Lavelle Edwards of BYU. Speaking to the boys, he told of a case when Steve Young, the quarterback of the BYU team last year, uh, was in a rather difficult situation. He had thrown five interceptions, and the coach began to talk to him, I guess pretty plainly. And Steve replied, Hey, coach, there's no problem, and went back on the field and threw a great, beautiful arching pass and then another and carried the game off to victory. I feel impressed to say this morning, as I think of the progress of this work, Coach, there's no problem. 
It's a great honor to stand before you and speak to Latter-day Saints across the world. I pray for the direction of the Holy Spirit. I am not here as a substitute for the President of the Church. I am speaking as his second counselor, a responsibility I did not seek but one which I have accepted as a sacred call in the fulfillment of which I have tried to lift some of the heavy burdens of office from the shoulders of our beloved President and move forward the work of the Lord with diligence. President Kimball is the prophet of the Lord. None other can or will take his place for so long as he lives. When he passes, there will be another ready, a man who, through long years of experience and service, has been trained, has been tested, has been schooled and refined and prepared to fill that sacred and awesome responsibility. I wish to report to the membership of the Church, wherever you may be, that the work is going well. I feel that our Father in Heaven smiles upon it with approval. I realize, of course, that each of us, regardless of our position, could do better in our responsibilities. We ought constantly to be improving. Nonetheless, there is cause for satisfaction. The missionary work moves forward with new fields open since we last met in conference. The activity of Church members throughout the world improves. The vast work of genealogical research is being expanded, and an ever-increasing number of faithful Latter-day Saints carry forward the sacred work in the temples. We are building new houses of worship on an unprecedented scale. Economies of construction have been developed to hold down the cost of these structures. Three new temples have been dedicated since last we met, one in Boise, Idaho, one in Sydney, Australia, and most recently in Manila, the capital city of the Philippines. Tens of thousands of Latter-day Saints have participated in these inspiring dedicatory services. In the Boise Temple, 24 individual services were held, with a great outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord in each. Numerous were the expressions of appreciation. In Australia, it was the same. People came to the temple from as far away as Tasmania in the south and from Thursday Island in the far north. They came across the entire continent from Perth on the west coast, many of them at great sacrifice to enjoy the wonderful atmosphere of that significant occasion where 14 dedicatory services were held. We returned only a few days ago from Manila in the Philippines. There, on an eminence where the ground falls away to the rear, Affording a view of an entire valley stands a beautiful and sacred temple. Here, as elsewhere, there is incised in the stone of one of the towers the words, Holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. By the thousands they came, the wonderful, faithful members of the Church in the Republic of the Philippines with songs of thanksgiving, with words of counsel and testimony, with a prayer of dedication, they all joined in presenting as the gift of a thankful people 
this beautiful house to the Lord as his abode. In all of these new temples, the buildings have been opened to the general public prior to dedication. Tens and tens of thousands have gone through them. They have been free to ask any questions concerning them. These visitors have been respectful and reverent as they have partaken of the spirit of these sacred structures, as they have felt of that spirit and learned something of the purposes for which they have been built. These who have been our guests have recognized why it is that following dedication we regard these buildings as sanctified and holy, reserved for sacred purposes, and closed to the public. Participating in these dedicatory services, one senses the true strength of the Church. That strength is in the hearts of the people who are united by a bond of recognition of God as our Eternal Father and Jesus Christ as our Savior. Their individual testimonies are firmly established on a foundation of faith concerning things divine. In each new temple we have had a cornerstone ceremony in harmony with a tradition that goes back to ancient times. Before the general use of concrete, the foundation walls of a building were laid with large stones. A trench would be dug and stones would be placed as footings. Starting at a point of beginning, the foundation wall would be run in one direction to a cornerstone. Then the corner would be turned and the wall run to the next corner where another stone was placed, from which the wall would be run to the next corner and from there back to the point of beginning. In many instances, including the construction of early temples in the Church, cornerstones were used at each junction point of the walls and put in place with a ceremony. The final stone was spoken of as the chief cornerstone, and its placement became the reason for much celebration. With this cornerstone in position, the foundation was ready for the superstructure. Hence the analogy that Paul used in describing the true Church. <clears throat> now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. We have basic cornerstones on which this great Latter-day Church has been established by the Lord and built fitly framed together. They are absolutely fundamental to this work. The very foundation, the anchor of it on which it stands, I should like to speak briefly of these four essential cornerstones which anchor the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mention first the chief cornerstone, whom we recognize and honor as the Lord Jesus Christ. The second is the vision given the Prophet Joseph Smith 
when the Father and the Son appeared to him. The third is the Book of Mormon, which speaks as a voice from the dust, with the words of ancient prophets declaring the divinity and reality of the Savior of mankind. The fourth is the priesthood, with all of its powers and authority, whereby men act in the name of God in administering the affairs of his kingdom. May I comment on each of these? Absolutely basic to our faith is our testimony of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who under a divine plan was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He grew in Nazareth as the carpenter's son. Within him the elements of both mortality and immortality received respectively from his earthly mother and his heavenly father. In the course of his brief earthly ministry, he walked the dusty roads of Palestine, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, raising the dead, teaching doctrines both transcendent and beautiful. He was, as Isaiah had prophesied, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He reached out to those whose burdens were heavy and invited them to cast their burdens upon him, declaring, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He went about doing good and was hated for it. His enemies came against him. He was seized, tried on spurious charges, convicted to satisfy the cries of the mob, and condemned to die on Calvary's cross. The nails pierced his hands and feet, and he hung in agony and pain, giving himself a ransom for the sins of all men. He died crying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and the third day rose from the grave. He came forth triumphant in a victory over death, the first fruits of all that slept. With his resurrection came the promise to all men that life is everlasting, that even as in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Nothing in all of human history equals the wonder the splendor, the magnitude, or the fruits of the matchless life of the Son of God who died for each of us. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. As Isaiah foretold, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the chief cornerstone of the Church which bears his name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. He is the author of our salvation, the giver of eternal life. There is none to equal him. There never has been. There never will be. Thanks be to God for the gift of his beloved Son, who gave his life that we might live, and who is the chief immovable cornerstone of our faith and his Church, the second cornerstone. 
the first vision of the prophet Joseph Smith. The year was 1820, the season spring. The boy with questions walked into the grove near his father's farm. There, finding himself alone, he pleaded in prayer for that wisdom which James promised would be given liberally to those who ask of God in faith. There, in circumstances which he has described in much detail, he beheld the Father and the Son, the great God of the universe and the risen Lord, both of whom spoke to him. This transcendent experience opened the marvelous work of restoration. It lifted the curtain on the long-promised dispensation of the fullness of times. For more than a century and a half, enemies, critics, and some would-be scholars have worn out their lives trying to disprove the validity of that vision. Of course they cannot understand it. The things of God are understood by the Spirit of God. There had been nothing of comparable magnitude since the God, Son of God walked the earth in mortality. Without it as a foundation stone for our faith and organization, we have nothing. With it we have everything. Much has been written, much will be written, in an effort to explain it away. The finite mind cannot comprehend it. But the testimony of the Holy Spirit, experienced by countless numbers of people all through the years since it happened, bears witness that it is true, that it happened as Joseph Smith said it happened, that it was as real as the sunrise over Palmyra, that it is an essential foundation stone, a cornerstone, without which the Church could not be fitly framed together. The third cornerstone, the Book of Mormon. I hold it in my hand. It is real. It has weight and substance which can be physically measured. I open its pages and read, and it has language both beautiful and uplifting. The ancient record from which it was translated came out of the dust as a, out of the earth as a voice speaking from the dust. It came as the testimony of generations of men and women who lived their lives upon the earth, who struggled with adversity, who quarreled and fought, who at various times lived the divine law and prospered, and at other times forsook their God and went down to destruction. It contains what has been described as the fifth gospel, a moving testament of the new world concerning the visit of the resurrected Redeemer on the soil of this hemisphere. The evidence for its truth, for its validity in a world that is prone to demand evidence, lies not in archaeology or anthropology, though these may be helpful to some. It lies not in word research or historical analysis, though these may be confirmatory. The evidence for its truth and validity lie within the covers of the book itself. The test of its truth lies in its reading. It is a book of God. 
Reasonable men may sincerely question its origin. But those who have read it prayerfully have come to know by a power beyond their natural senses that it is true, that it contains the word of God, that it outlines saving truths of the everlasting gospel, that it came forth by the gift and power of God to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. It is here. It must be explained. It can be explained only as the translator himself explained its origin. Hand in hand with the Bible, whose companion volume it is, it stands as another witness to a doubting generation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is an unassailable cornerstone of our faith. Cornerstone number four, the restoration to earth of priesthood, power, and authority. That authority was given to men anciently, the lesser authority to the sons of Aaron to administer in things temporal as well as in some sacred ecclesiastical ordinances. It was given by the Lord himself to his apostles when he declared, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. In its full restoration it involved the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, whose head was taken to satisfy the whims of a wicked woman of Peter, James, and John, they who faithfully walked with the Master before his death and proclaimed his resurrection and divinity following his death. It involved Moses, Elias, and Elijah, each bringing priesthood keys to complete the work of restoring all of the acts and ordinances of previous dispensations In this, the great final dispensation of the fullness of times. The priesthood is here. It has been conferred upon us. We act in that authority. We speak as sons of God in the name of Jesus Christ and as holders of this divinely given endowment. We know, for we have seen the power of this priesthood. We have seen the sick healed, the lame made to walk, and the coming of light and knowledge and understanding to those who have been in darkness. Paul wrote concerning the priesthood, No man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. We have not acquired it through purchase or bargain. The Lord has given it to men who are considered worthy to receive it regardless of station in life, the color of their skin, or the nation in which they live. It is the power and the authority to govern in the affairs of the kingdom of God. It is given only by ordination, by the laying on of hands, by those in authority to do so. The qualification for eligibility is obedience to the commandments of God. There is no power on the earth like it. Its authority extends beyond life, through the veil of death, to the eternities ahead. 
It is everlasting in its consequences. These great God-given gifts are the unshakable cornerstones which anchor the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as well as the individual testimonies and convictions of its members. The reality and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the sublime vision given the Prophet Joseph Smith of the Father and the Son, ushering in the dispensation of the fullness of time, the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, speaking in declaration of the divinity of the Savior and the priesthood of God divinely conferred to be exercised in righteousness for the blessing of our Father's children. Each of these cornerstones is related to the other, each connected by a foundation of apostles and prophets all tied to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. On this has been established His Church, fitly framed together for the blessing of all who will partake of its offering. So undergirded beneath and fitly framed above, it stands as the creation of the Almighty. It is a shelter from the storms of life. It is a refuge of peace for those in distress. It is a house of succor for those in need. It is the conservator of eternal truth, the teacher of the divine will. It is the true and living Church of the Master. Of these things I give solemn testimony, bearing witness to all within the sound of my voice that God has spoken again to open this final glorious dispensation, that His Church is here, the Church which carries the name of His beloved Son, that there has come from the earth the record of an ancient people bearing witness to this generation of the work of the Almighty, that the everlasting priesthood is among men for their blessing and the governance of His work, that this is the true and living Church of Jesus Christ, that it is immovably established on a foundation of apostles and prophets with cornerstones of unshakable firmness put in place by Him for the accomplishment of His eternal purposes, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Of such was the faith of our fathers, of such is our faith, faith of our Father's mighty faith. We will be true to Thee till death. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, President Benson. The inspiring music for this priesthood session has been furnished by the Tabernacle Choir Mormon Youth Combined Men. We are grateful for the beautiful music which you have given. Following my closing remarks, the choir will sing All Glory, Laud, and Honor, following which Jack, Elder Jack H. Goslin, Jr., a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, will offer the benediction. Now, brethren, if I may say just a word, and 
I'm going to set aside my prepared talk and just speak extemporaneously, perhaps. This has been a great meeting. Every boy who is here should have had cultivated in his heart tonight an increased desire to go into the world as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd just like to say to you boys, as you think of that, that now is the time to prepare for that great responsibility. Coach Edwards talked to you about the importance of preparation. The Lord said, If ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. This is the day of preparation for you boys, whether you be 12 or 14 or 16 or 18. Watch yourselves. Never use language when you're with your friends. That would be incompatible with the calling that will come to you, if you are worthy of it, to go into the world to represent this Church and to serve as an ambassador of the Lord. God bless you to this end. You men who are husbands and fathers should have had kindled in your hearts tonight as a result of the inspiring remarks given by Brother Hanks. So to conduct yourselves in your homes as to be worthy of the love, the respect, the honor, the companionship of your wives and your children. Holding the priesthood does not give any man the right to domineer over those for whom he should show the greatest of love and the greatest of consideration. Each of us should go home this night with a stronger resolve in our hearts to live worthy of the companionship of those who love us most and whom we should love and honor and respect without equivocation of any kind. Now, for a few minutes in closing, I would simply like to speak with appreciation and love for the priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are hundreds of thousands now reaching toward the millions of boys and men of the priesthood who love the Lord and walk in obedience to His commandments. These husbands and fathers govern their homes in kindness and with a spirit of love and appreciation. They answer every call to serve in whatever capacity as such calls come from the Church.
They are good citizens of the governments under which they live, wherever they may be across the world. They are good neighbors in their communities. As employees, they are loyal. They work with diligence and with honesty and integrity. They are men who live chaste and honorable lives, men who love the Lord and are loved by Him. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the goodness of your lives. I thank you for your examples before your families and before the world. You bring honor to this Church. You bring happiness and peace and security into the lives of your wives and children. You indulge your generous instincts in giving to the poor, in befriending the lonely, in standing up for the very best in our society. You are the sweet fruits of this beautiful gospel of the Son of God. No sense of guilt troubles your sleep. No violations of the commandments of God haunt your days. You are those whom I call my loyal brethren. I thank you for that tremendous loyalty. Many of your kind have carried forward this work from the beginning. They were present in the home of Peter Whitmer when the Church was organized. They were among the few who stood by the prophet in the troubled days of the New York period of the Church. They readily left Kirtland to serve missions wherever they were asked to go at the call of the prophet. They made the long march with Zion's camp, the 800-mile journey from Ohio to western Missouri. They stood by the prophet in Liberty Jail. Peeled and driven, they staggered with the destitute saints across the bottomlands of the Mississippi and into Quincy, Illinois. They drained the swamps of commerce to create Nauvoo the beautiful. They erected the magnificent house of the Lord on the hill above the river. They were with Joseph at Carthage. They mourned his death and rallied to the leadership of the Twelve. With mobs at their backs, they abandoned their homes and temple and faced the Iowa winter. Some of them marched the long, long road with the Mormon battalion to San Diego and then back to the valley of the Great Salt Lake. Others followed the Elkhorn and the Platte on to Scotts Bluff, South Pass, Independence Rock, and down into this valley. Here they grubbed sagebrush, fought crickets, labored and prayed, built homes, churches, and temples to their God. Through all of this long odyssey, there were those who were not loyal, some few who were traitors, who were betrayers, but it was a small minority. Honor be to those who stood firm and to their wives who worked beside them. You, my brethren, are of that same kind, loyal, men of faith, men of virtue, men who love their families and love their brethren and sisters, men who build temples and then labor in them, men who respond to calls to serve and do so without stint or selfishness 
of any kind, men who love God and his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot say enough of appreciation for you. Your sustaining vote in this conference means more than I can express. Sometimes when I think the load is heavy and the burdens are many, I think of you who not only raise your hands in affirmation, but also give of your heart's time and substance in loyal support. God bless you. I pray for you that there may be peace and love in your homes, that you may be prospered in your honest endeavors, and that when the time comes, you may stand before the Lord and receive his welcome. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I invoke the blessings of heaven upon each of you and upon your loved ones, and do it with gratitude in my heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.